tonight's speaker um, has um, a double degree, uh, one from Oxford in history, uh, one from uh, Cambridge in economics. Um, after uh, his education, uh, he spent uh, time at the Bank of England, working there as an economist, then joined the Financial Times, where he is, uh, uh, has been uh, the uh, international trade editor uh, for quite a while. Um, without further ado, the floor is open to you. Thank you for joining us tonight, and enlighten us, please, on why Greece should default. Thank you very much. International economy editor uh, or international trade editor. I still can't hear that um, that title without wincing because I think it's the pomp possibly the most pompous and overblown title conceivable. Uh, or so I thought, anyway, until an American friend of mine um, told me that he has a friend who works at NASA, and her title apparently is a director of the universe. <laughs> Um, it's lovely to be back in, in London. I actually live in Washington these days, and most of the, um, the coverage I see of Britain suggests it's this sort of uh, apocalyptic economic wasteland in which you know, George Osborne is per personally raising one hospital in four to the ground. Um, so it's kind of nice to come back and see some of the buildings at least still standing. Um, default is, of course, um, a very dramatic and emotive word. It's the kind of word you might use when you're trying to get people to turn up to a lecture. Um, when I say default, what I really mean is restructuring or rescheduling, in other words, negotiating a reduction um, in the value of the debt. I just kind of define this as anything which reduces the, the value of the outstanding contract to disadvantage the creditor. Now, um, I say that for two reasons. One, just in case any pedantic bond lawyers have crept into the room, as they sometimes do. Um, and two, because what I want to get at is that Restructuring, rescheduling, default is a perfectly sensible thing to do if you go at it in a controlled way. Way too much drama has been placed on the act of defaulting and rescheduling, and nothing like enough attention has been paid to the circumstances that surround it. The issue is often not whether you default or not, as so much as why you have defaulted, what you can learn from it and what you can do with the policy freedom, the policy space, that restructuring your debt, therefore giving you more money to spend on other things, reducing your debt interest payments and reducing your debt repayments um, will give you. In Greece's case, it's got this particularly difficult task um, of being in a very badly designed single currency uh, that it should never have joined and over whose rules it never had very much power and now has even less power. But it is, that, um, it is that single currency, and along with its own decisions, which will determine not only its future, but very possibly the future of countries like Portugal and possibly Spain. So the two kind of policy lessons, one, we should deal with sovereign debt in a much more calm and reasoned way, um, and two, do not take major and irrevocable economic decisions for political reasons. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting just how cataclysmic politically the act of defaulting on debt is. You, know, you don't have to be in British politics or watching British politics um, for very long before realising or, or recognising that the time Britain nearly, actually not very nearly, defaulted uh, 34 years ago and had to call in the International Monetary Fund is still a very potent political issue. Um, and this is kind of odd because as long as governments have been borrowing, they've been defaulting defaulting to their own citizens, defaulting to foreign citizens, where there are important distinctions, and of course um, defaulting 
to each other. Uh, the first recorded default, since my first degree is in history, I, I felt the need to go and look it up. Um, the first recorded default goes back to the 4th century BC, which is, of course, under the Greek civilization, um, when 10 out of 13 municipalities uh, defaulted. But that was by no means the last. There's this wonderful, wonderful work by um, two American academics, Ken Rogoth and Carmen Reinhardt, who wrote a book very well entitled This Time is Different about, um, about financial crises, uh, which has gone through the history of sovereign default in many countries. I mean, it is a really excellent book, and I, I fully encourage anyone interested in this subject to read it just after reading mine. Um, so, before, um, uh, between the 1930s and the 1950s, for example, when the Great Depression forced a lot of governments into default because they simply didn't have the growth to generate revenue, more than half the entire world was in default, by which I mean they were not servicing the interest on their debt, they were not repaying, they could not borrow any more. Greece itself is certainly no stranger to default in 1826. It defaulted and to the extent where it was actually cut out of the capital markets for 53 years continuously. Um, and its, uh, the, its external default during the Depression lasted from 1932 until 1964. Uh, however, in the modern world, you've got some way to go to be my personal favorite, for whom I have a sneaking admiration, Philip II of Spain. Born 1527 acceded to the Spanish throne, which then empire, in 1556, defaulted on the imperial debt in 1557, then again in 1560, then he left it 15 years and defaulted in 1575, and then just to show he'd not lost his touch, he defaulted on the way out of the door in 1596 before dying in 1598. <laughs> um, incidentally, just in, in parenthesis, one of the reasons he had such pressure on his um, Finances, but they were fighting the war of the Dutch Revolt, trying to prevent the Netherlands leaving the Spanish Empire, and were ultimately unsuccessful. So, when Spain played the Netherlands, right, it doesn't always come out the same way. <laughs> I would love to have seen the prediction of Paul the Octopus, I must say, on the uh, on the Dutch Revolt. Um, but back then, unless you were a powerful monarch like Philip II, uh, you could be treated in incredibly punitive ways for defaulting on sovereign debt. Um, almost as though it were kind of commercial or personal debt and the way those were treated then, which was to throw debtors in jail. I mean, you know, there was a debtor's jail, or there was a debtor's jail just down the road actually in, uh, in Fleet Street. And the structure of power back then favored creditors over debtors and it particularly favored creditors who had gunboats. Um, one example I think quite a few people, the, some examples people, quite a few people know and other less known ones. Egypt is one that I think quite a few people know. Egypt took on a huge amount of debt to build uh, the Suez Canal, got into trouble, ended up being run by a committee of creditors from France and the UK in the 1870s, rather bravely then decided they were going to default and repudiate on their debt in 1879, whereupon the British invaded in 1882. That is really quite um, hard-line debt collection. Um, Haiti, recently in the news, one of the reasons that Haiti is so poor, by no means the only reason, but one of the reasons Haiti is so poor is that when it bravely got um, independence from the French in the early 19th century, the French imposed gigantic reparations on it in the form of debt, which it was not able to pay off, or certainly not able to pay off the loans which it took to pay off those loans until the middle of the 20th century. 
And the one hardly anyone knows, but I rather like, is Newfoundland, the uh, little Canadian province which used to be almost an independent state within the British Empire. Uh, borrowed a lot of money, got hit by the Great Depression and apparently the great fall in fish prices, which I'm sure we're all familiar with in the 1920s onwards. Um, and Britain again simply went in, suspended this democratic government, ran it itself for 15 years, got bored of that and pushed it into Canada. Um, now things have changed since then, though not changed, well, in terms of policy suggestions, not always changed completely. Uh, some of you, I have no idea what the standard economics textbook is, but some of you may have, have uh, used a textbook written by Rudy Dornbusch, the late wonderful Rudy Dornbusch from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he genuinely, in all seriousness, suggested that when Argentina defaulted, and we'll get on to the Argentine default in a sec, when Argentina defaulted in 2001, there should be a committee of international creditors set up to run Argentina because it was simply obvious to everyone, or at least to him, that Argentina could not run itself. Um, but these, these kind of change, right? We don't invade countries anymore, not really, in exactly the same way that the Bankruptcy Act at the end of the 19th century ended debtors' prisons, in exactly the same way that bankruptcy law will give protection uh, to companies in bankruptcy such as the US Chapter 11 law to try and work themselves out. So it became harder and harder um, to go and seize uh, assets and go and uh, have very aggressive debt collection strategies when it came to sovereign debt. Lots of the, um, uh, lots of the assets owned by governments are, for example, off limits. You can't just seize somebody's embassy um, because they've defaulted on the debt. And you know, there's quite a big infrastructure that's now set up to help restructuring. Um, there's a particular law firm called Cleary Gottlieb, which is, specializes in this, and they put out a, um, a paper recently that looked like touting for business to me, but anyway, uh, suggesting how easy it would be for Greece to restructure all their, all their debt is issued under their own Greek law. It would be, actually be quite simple. So why don't more countries do it? Um, one of the reasons is what we economists, I say putting on my other uh, half-earned hat, um, we call time consistency or time inconsistency, which is even if you know over time it's in your interests to restructure, even you know that fundamentally you are never going to get out of this burden of debt, you're never going to grow fast enough to grow off the burden of debt to be able to repay it, you're sure at some point it's going to overwhelm you. Even if you know that, it still can be in your personal short-term interest at each point to keep going. Just let's have one more go, have another throw of the dice. Let's double down on the bet and see what we can do. Apart from anything else, given that governments change and ministers change, it might well be that some other sucker is in, in power by the time the default actually comes, which is, of course, precisely what happened um, with Greece. And what The problem with this is that it means when the default does eventually come, it's just much worse. Exhibit one, Argentina. Um, Argentina is the kind of Philip II of the 19th and 20th century. Uh, one of its defaults back in 1890 very nearly brought down Bering's Bank. If any of you remember Bering's Bank, uh, a century before someone else brought it down. Um, because it held a lot of Argentine uh, debt and it's been defaulting in, in you know, really a rich variety of ways uh, since. My personal favourite being it was during the 1980s when the Argentine government decided forcibly to take bank accounts off everybody and give them government bonds instead. Um, no one outside Argentina really cared about that because it didn't affect Wall Street, but uh, Argentines all 
still remember it as, as uh, really quite a, a dreadful way of defaulting. Um, so the big one was 2001, and this built up during the 1990s when Argentina, just like Greece, um, fixed its currency to another one, meaning the dollar, and Argentina, just like Greece, failed to keep its public spending in check, not least because, you know, and this is my opinion and it's a strong one, but Argentina has a dysfunctional, almost kleptocratic political clique who repeatedly enriched themselves by ripping off the rest of the country and anyone else. Um, I'm often accused, there's a whole chapter on Argentina in the US, and I'm often accused of being anti-Argentine. Um, and I, all the Argentines I know, personally, are absolutely charming. I used to play football with a whole bunch of Argentines. They were way better at football than I was. Um, and whenever I said to them, what's happening with your country, or whenever they read things like this, I said, Alan, you know, you're way too soft on Argentina. We're much worse than that. Um, but Argentina had to keep borrowing. It couldn't control spending. In particular, it couldn't control the spendthrift governors in the provinces. And so they had to keep borrowing more and more from whoever would lend to them, first the international creditors, and then increasingly the International Monetary Fund. It became clear, or it became clear to me anyway, and the FT, um, by about 2000, uh, what was happening, that Argentina was um, heading through default. But at each stage, each stage it actually came up, it was always worth taking another punt. Nobody wanted to pull the plug. The IMF, right, which is, it's, let's face it, not an institution unafraid of being unpopular, um, that's kind of part of its function, at each point said, mm, we don't want to be the one who pushed Argentina into default, we'll keep lending to them. The United States, which had a, a foreign policy interest in being nice to Argentina because of the, you know, the shredded remnants of, uh, what became the shredded remnants anyway of, of, um, of the hemispheric foreign policy, the Latin American foreign policy, continued to do so. I met recently actually with a, um, a, a White House official from the Bush administration um, and said, were you optimistic? Were you just more optimistic than us all the way along? Did you have some kind of secret plan that didn't come off? Why was it that you kept lending to Argentina? Why was it you kept you know, authorizing IMF loans to Argentina? And he said, actually, no, no, we knew they were going to default, or we were pretty sure they were going to default. Everyone just kept thinking, not on my watch. Um, I'm not going to name that White House official, by the way. And the penultimate act of this was when they did not a proper restructuring, but a voluntary bond exchange, where they uh, offered existing bondholders, existing people lending to Argentina, new debt on incredibly advantageous terms. It got them off the hook for paying interest, interest payments for a few months, but it made the debt of their burden much worse. Nobody stopped this happening. Investment banks made gigantic amounts of money um, underwriting it and in fees, in what my, I, would, I would describe as a disgraceful um, situation, and it, it made no difference. The rest is really unpleasant history. Argentina defaulted in December 2001. Its currency collapsed. Uh, it went through five separate presidents in two weeks, which even for Argentina is pushing it a bit. Um, and GDP contracted by a quarter. Now, at this point, Argentina could have done one of two things. One, it could have said, you know what, we've, we've basically been following a policy regime now for a decade, and we've put a lot of credibility on it, and you know, we've had a lot of support from the international community. It really hasn't worked. We need fundamentally to look at ourselves and say how we can do this again. Or the other thing it could do is say, this was everybody in Washington's fault. Let's carry on as normal. 
Um, I'm not even going to run a book on that one. It was the second one. And they actually got, interestingly, Argentina, because they were so heavily in debt, they actually managed to get a gigantic reduction in their debt with this rather, they had this rather kind of chaotic and aggressive um, debt renegotiation strategy, but they got most of their debt holders to agree to write down their debt to take a loss of 70%, which is huge for sovereign um, restructuring. But they didn't really take the advantage. They didn't control spending. And lots of people said to them, the IMF, you know, us, said, you're going to run into inflationary problems quickly. You know, they had, you're going to get a big bounce of, of growth because you've gone so far. But your economy is unreformed. It's largely run by cliques. It's run by a system of monopolies and licenses. You need to reform that. You need to open it up. Then you can have decent growth. Um, but no, they ignored everyone. And in a couple of years... Uh, inflation did indeed um, start to take off, just as everyone had predicted. And the way that they dealt with that was to change the way in which inflation was calculated and then to fire the head of the statistics office when he complained. Um, the thing is, markets these days are actually quite forgiving. Once you've defaulted, you can actually get back into them quite quickly. People are not cut out of markets, or do not have to be cut out of markets for 20 years anymore. Um, the aforementioned Ken Rogoff, uh, I discussed this with him once, and he, he said, he was talking to somebody actually in terms of the Argentine situation, and said, but surely that's it, surely they could never borrow again. And they said, oh no, I mean, you know, if they square themselves up and you know, went back into markets, someone would lend to them, because that someone would know, you know what, I can get rid of this quickly to somebody else, and that somebody else would buy it because they could think they could get quickly to someone else. And then, as he says it, there will be a dancing conga line all the way back from Buenos Aires. Um, these days, or in, the last, or in the 1990s actually, countries which defaulted uh, could actually go and borrow again from the markets within three, three and a half months, really quite quick. Back in the 1980s, it used to take you more than four years. So clearly what I need now, isn't it, to give this some credibility, is an example of a country which defaulted massively and suffered no danger as a consequence. So I'll go for the big one, and in particular a country which thinks and keeps telling you it has never defaulted, which is the United States of America. Um, Back in the 20s and 30s, the US was on, or 20s anyway, the US was on the gold standard. And the gold standard is a cash system, therefore, you know, dollars were exchangeable for gold up to a certain amount. But separately, the government, when it was borrowing, and indeed lots of private companies when they were borrowing, wrote a clause into their, in those contracts saying those are exchangeable for gold as well. So you don't have to sell the, sell the bond for cash and then buy gold with the cash, you can just sell the bond for gold. Um, when the Great Depression came, and the US, along with everyone else, uh, came crashing off the, the, standard, the gold standard, of course, the dollar plunged against the value of gold. And those contracts, those debt contracts, suddenly became, those bonds, suddenly became enormously valuable because they were now worth 20 or 30% more than they were before in dollar terms. It was impossible that anyone was ever going to be able to service those, particularly in the middle of the Great Depression. The prices of all those bonds started falling because everyone said, no one can conceivably service these, this is dreadful, what on earth are we going to do? Brilliantly, the US Congress, in one of their uh, very rare attempts of acting, um, examples of acting decisively, um, just passed a single law saying all gold clauses in all contracts, in all debts, everywhere in the United States of America are hereby null and void. Right? Spectacular intervention in uh, private property rights. I mean, you know, a national default on every single bond. 
Uh, and what happened? The price of bonds actually went up, not down. Because when it had gone up, because when that had happened, everyone thought, okay, I am at least going to get some of my money back then, because they're now at a reasonable level. And the economy can function again. Because notwithstanding the, the fact they're in depression, the US was a functioning system. Its financial markets were continuing to function. It was not um, Argentina. There are, other, there are other examples, actually, which are slightly kind of on their own. Countries that are making a big change often have a huge default, and it's part of their kind of transition from one state or one system to another. So Poland, for example, when it emerged from the Warsaw Pact, uh, got a gigantic debt um, write-off in return for um, embracing a rather stringent set of, of free market policies. So, to Greece. Um, the Greek situation is not pretty, um, and it's made worse by the fact that the previous government were cheating, and I mean literally just telling lies about what the, what the deficit was. Just to, I'm not going to go through the numbers at vast length, but just to try and give an idea. Go, the government deficit um, this year is about 14% um, of GDP, which is three times higher than previously thought. That's not hugely higher, not massively higher than, for example, the UK or the US at this point. However, uh, Greek debt is 115% of GDP, which is quite a lot higher, and heading higher. Much of that, helpfully, is of course owned to commercial banks elsewhere in the Eurozone, in France and Germany and so forth, which is why they really do have a vested interest in Greece not defaulting. When they got the, um, the bailout program from the, uh, sorry, whenever I say bailout program, I always get my friends at the IMF phoning me up and saying, you mustn't call it a bailout program, it's a rescue package. So when they got the bailout program, um, <laughs> in uh, April, May of 110 billion euros. The, the deal, the agreement um, they signed along with it involved cutting, or some combination of tax cuts and cutting spending by 11 percentage points of GDP, plus on top of some tightening that they'd already agreed. You know, as a pure illustrative example, that would be the equivalent in the UK of abolishing the National Health Service and a half within two years. They're supposed to do that, and they're supposed to get growth as well. Somehow, smashing this gigantic hole in the middle of their economy is supposed to free up enough resources that in only a couple of years, the Greek economy will be growing again, because of course, it's not enough for them simply to stop uh, spending so much. They also have to get growth to get tax revenue in as well. No one's ever done this. No one has done anything close to this as well. There are two, you see two examples cited, uh, which are Canada and Sweden during the 1990s, uh, which did reduce their, their deficit very quickly. But however, they had two things which Greece does not. One, they had their own currency, so they could uh, devalue, which helped them a lot because they could sell exports to boost their growth. Two, they were in the middle of a, quite a buoyant world economy where lots of people wanted to buy exports. Greece is in the situation where no one in the world, apart from perhaps the US, seems to want to buy exports. Everyone else is trying to export their way out of trouble. So it's kind of unlikely that they're going to do this. Um, even if they manage to fulfill their um, plan, Greece will still have um, government debt equivalent to 150% of GDP five years from now. I don't think that's really credible. Uh, I don't think it's credible you can sustain that debt level for that long without something bad happening. 
So yeah, I think it's very likely, actually, and most investors I've spoken to suggest a probability somewhere between 80 and 90% that Greece will at some point need to restructure. And the number you often hear is they need to reduce the kind of the value now, the net present value of their debt by about 20%. Um, naturally, the banks holding all this debt, the French and Spanish and uh, German banks are not going to like this. But in which case the best thing to do is not to do it tomorrow, but to plan for Greece to get on the right track, to because to it needs to do this no matter what happens. This is not going to be a panacea. Greece will still need to cut spending and still need to raise taxes so it's not adding to its debt, but it can get rid of the debt overhang. And if they give, you know, six months warning, a year's warning, or at least if they wait six months or a year and then do it, then the banks involved, perhaps with government help, ought to be able to strengthen themselves enough that they'll take the hit. Um, in my op more optimistic moments, I think this is actually what they are doing. Because signing up to a deal that's highly improbable in the way they have suggests to me that they must have thought already of an exit. However, I know never overestimate the degree of planning that goes on uh, within the Eurozone. Um, the reason I say that is that, you know, when Greece defaulted in the 19th century and was out of the capital markets for 50 years, 53 years, um, no one really cared, right? It was Greece's problem. Uh, the particular genius of the single currency is turning what used to be Greece's problem into everybody's problem. Um, Eric Morecambe, the great, great comedian, uh, used to say that a problem, um, a problem shared is not a problem halved, it's just a problem that two people have got. And um, what Greece joining the Eurozone did is several things. One, it made it possible to borrow way more than it would have before, because implicitly it was borrowing on the back of Germany's credit rating. Um, two, it means that it meant that when Greece became uncompetitive, when, as it did, as, when its wages and prices drifted up, against Germany to the point where one of the reasons it cannot export is simply it's not competitive. Um, it was unable to get it down by letting the exchange rate go, by devaluing, which is what most countries would previously have done. And one of the problems with this single currency is that if you lock in economies with very different degrees of competitiveness, and if those economies shift in competitiveness, um, during the time of the single currency, it is very difficult to get them down again. You can do it. I mean, Germany did it. Germany, uh, as part of its self-sacrifice, joined the euro at, at somewhat too high a rate and then spent five years grinding down wages year by year by year until they made themselves competitive again. Okay? But Germany can do that because Germany is really good at doing that. Germany has good coordination between unions and management and at times like that, that's really helpful. That is why Germany did so well in the 1970s, because they were able to hold down wages in the face of rising inflation. Greece, unfortunately, needs to learn how to do that, because it cannot do it um, at the moment. And along with, um, yeah, along with Greece looking at itself, um, you know, the euro itself needs to, needs to look in the mirror. Um, the problems with having a single currency, you know, are not, this, the critique I'm going to make is not uh, new, and it's not, it's certainly not original to me, and it's not new, and it's not uh, new or original when I and other people were saying it 10 years ago. Um, the problem with creating a monetary union like the euro is that you have monetary integration, 
but you have no fiscal integration. So when a country gets in fiscal problems, it's all familiar, right? When a country gets in fiscal problems, uh, there's no way of bailing it out. In the US, for example, um, when, a country, when a state like, for example, California gets in trouble, quite a lot of California spending, or quite a lot of the spending in California is actually federal spending, more perhaps than you'd think. So even if California's own finances are in, um, uh, in a bit of a state, nonetheless the federal money will stop them going really uh, badly off. That is not the case in um, the Eurozone. And I have to say as well, just, just in parenthesis, that when, the, um, when this decision was taken to give Greece an emergency loan, um, it took the Eurozone three months, three and a half months, from the time they'd identified it was necessary to the time when they actually launched it. And they faffed about, decided they were going to create a new mechanism, decided they were going to create a European monetary fund, and then decided they weren't going to do that, decided that they wanted to do the lending to Greece rather than relying on the IMF, despite the fact that the IMF um, actually lends at about half the interest rate that the, Euro, uh, the Eurozone would, and then finally came out with it, by which point things have got much worse. None of this machinery should be designed now. It should have been designed 10 years ago. So the Eurozone needs to reform itself, and it needs to reform itself either by going back to or either by having fiscal rules that stop countries borrowing, the problem with these, of course, is that we did have them. They were called the Stability and Growth Pact. And the first two countries to breach the Stability and Growth Pact were actually France and Germany. Um, the other thing you can do is go to a full fiscal union, like the US, where huge amounts of money, tax money, are paid to the centre and, and dispersed in the centre. This is kind of a hard sell, I would say, because it basically means going to German taxpayers and going, right, lads. Now, um, and lasses, uh, you know how we bounced you into a really unpopular single currency without a referendum? Yeah, you remember that? And we made you give up the Deutschmark, right? Symbol of German stability and democratization since the Second World War. And basically everyone free rode on uh, you and we made you anchor a single currency for 10 years um, while a bunch of profligate Southern Europeans you know, spent their way to oblivion. Um, right, our plan now is that you give your money to those Southern Europeans direct. Yeah, I personally wouldn't like to have to make that, um, uh, make that case. But unless a case like that is made, unless rules like that are instituted, unless there is some control over fiscal policy, um, I think it will be hard to imagine that the euro will actually endure. I've heard lots of people saying, we should just leave the euro. I don't think that's true, certainly not at this point. I think people underestimate the gigantic costs of actually establishing a currency from nothing. This is not like simply detaching your currency from another, like Argentina did. The actual, actually creating a currency out of nothing, creating credibility out of nothing, almost certainly seeing all the deposits in your banking system flee while you're doing so, that is a gigantic cost. I don't think it's a cost anyone should choose. Um, I think it's quite sensible to choose to default or to restructure. I don't think it's sensible to choose to do that. But unless some of these actions are taken, unless get, Greece gets serious about itself and its competitiveness, and unless the Eurozone realises that it needs fiscal policy to match its monetary policy, I'm afraid I think that is what will happen. Um, defaults, or even restructurings, um, are not random. They happen for reasons. Um, some of those might reflect reasons which are not particularly your fault, such as a war coming out of nowhere. 
um, but some are. And the Greek crisis is telling us something. It's not a coincidence. It is telling us something. It is telling us that there is a problem with Greece. It is telling us that there is a problem with the Eurozone. Restructuring, rescheduling will be part, I think, of the answer to that problem. But it will never be the whole of the answer to that problem. Thank you. for uh, questions and answers and uh, I understand that people will be coming around with a microphone. Let me start in the back there. Come over with the microphone. Yes, please. Hi. Uh, the way you described Germany's position in this was as a very selfless victim. Um, that having been said, I think Germany has a lot of vested interests in this situation. One of those being that a number of these markets are markets for German exports. That in fact the whole Eurozone is part of a German economic area. Uh, and the other one being that German banks would no doubt have invested in Greek debt whether or not it were part of the Eurozone. And so there would be great interest in Germany over what was happening in Southern Europe, with or without the euro. Uh, I just wonder if you might comment on those at this point. Sure. I mean, the selflessness, I mean, I, I agree with you, but I mean, the selflessness I was talking about was about kind of the creation of the single currency and so forth. I agree. Is this, okay. I agree that the, um, the way in which Germany is managing it now is not sensible at all. Um, for a start, they seem to think that. Uh, punishing Greece and being seen to punish Greece up front is kind of sensible strategy. Uh, I have no idea how true this is because I've just been making calls on it in the last two days, but there's been some reporting out of Germany um, in Der Spiegel that um, Angela Merkel wants a new, I don't know if you've seen this, but they want a new bankruptcy mechanism, which sounds a bit like the old kind of creditors committee, whereby um, a club which I must say, with a spectacular tin ear, she wants to call the Berlin Club, um, would, <laughs> um, would take over, or, you know, uh, have some measure of control over, um, over bankrupt countries. So, yeah, I mean, I agree that the way they've kind of managed it um, in the very short term has been uh, really unhelpful. And Germany was one of the strongest voices, I'd say, I think, saying, um, we should do this, we should do this ourselves, um, and using it as, an, as, a, as a chance to kind of um, extend more power within um, Eurozone. Uh, on the exports, that's true, I mean, you know, one of the, the ironies of this is, is this crisis so far, well, hmm, this crisis so far has probably benefited Germany a bit. I don't know, it's, it's hard to tell what, what it is on net, but just because of their exports outside the Eurozone, you know, their, their currency um, exports outside the Eurozone, that is also something which is helpful for Germany, but not at all helpful for the world, because the world needs uh, importers, the world needs domestic demand at the moment, it doesn't need export, we've got plenty of exporters, thank you very much, uh, we need importers. And so, designing, um, as one of my colleagues says, uh, the revered Martin Wolf says, that the combination of power and parochialism in Germany is a lethal <laughs> combination. but. What Germany needs to do is to recognise that yes, it has made sacrifices early on. Uh, you know, the 
yes, the people should have been given um, a say. That is not a reason now to kind of snap back and try to run everything in a way that will benefit them personally. Hi, I'm Kevin Featherstone, a professor of contemporary Greek studies here at the LSC. Can I just make uh, three quick points? I'm very interested in uh, your lecture. I came, of course, uh, attracted by the word default rather than uh, the lesser notion of restructuring. Uh, but it's the default I wanted to focus on, really. Um, three quick points. It's Okay, sorry, three very quick points. Uh, you seem to disparage the idea that it's politics more than economics. But I do thought from the very beginning it's been politics more than economics for the European Union and for the single currency uh, zone. What is the alternative uh, in the present situation? You imply that there might be some kind of shrunken eurozone with uh, countries leaving. Uh, here, it seems that uh, the alternative would be some kind of return to a Dodge Mark zone. That seems to be at variance with what the very purpose of the European Union uh, is all about, then and, and now. But the second point is more domestic within Greece. I'd have thought that surely the history shows us uh, that membership of the Euro uh, has been very useful for Greece as an external lever to domestic reform. If you introduce defaults or some very radical restructuring, what then of the leverage on domestic reform and what of the future convergence between Greece and the rest of the Eurozone uh, thereafter? Final point, in terms of the management of the Eurozone, I would certainly share your, uh, your criticism of Eurozone governance, but I do thought, like the previous uh, questioner, much would lay on the shoulders of Angela Merkel that surely the rescue package for Greece would have been easier and less painful if there had been a recognition at an earlier stage that the rescue was necessary. But more fundamentally, surely one of the crucial weaknesses of the Eurozone today uh, stems from the continued German insistence on having uh, strong disciplinary rules, uh, but without giving the Eurozone the instruments to actually monitor police and manage them. So rules without instruments. Uh, we do need some kind of economic governance, I would thought. I'd be interested in your comments on those three points. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure we disagree a huge amount, actually. I mean, my point about politics more than economics was that the single currency, I think, was, was created more with um, a political aim in mind than it was with a recognition of the economic effects that it would have. I had endless conversations with European policymakers where I would say things like, but you know, th this, you haven't got any fiscal mechanism here. What's this 3% thing? This isn't going to this. And their eyes were glazed within about 10 seconds. They were just going, no, but Alan, you're British. You don't agree. This is, you don't understand. This is a political project. Um, but the problem is that, which it is, but political projects that take bad economic decisions generally end up being bad political projects as well. You know, this isn't this isn't extreme. Well, no, sorry, I can't make a person. But the um, and that I think is, is what's happening now. And if you look at the the political support for the entire Euro, uh, EU project, let alone the eurozone, within countries like Germany, you know, it's been it's been weak. It's been dropping like a stone, and that makes it difficult to do any reform. And I think, you know, sure, 
there's a lot of you always have to recognise that things are, are driven forward by um, uh, by political momentum, but you need to be careful with precisely what decisions you are taking um, along the way. For me, by the way, not that I'm an expert whatsoever in in um, geopolitics or foreign policy and so on. I think I would have, in the early 90s, I would have concentrated more on widening the European Union rather than narrowing it, given that you were dealing with the breakup of the Balkans um, and other issues like that, which were more, more pressing than trying to force everyone again into a monetary union. Um, on, yeah, membership of the Euro, as a lever, I guess so, but not enough. Um, clearly, otherwise it, you know, we wouldn't be in the, the situation we are. And I don't think you can ask the other members of the Eurozone to accept the turmoil that Greece has, um, that the Greek crisis has created, and take as compensation for that, you know, that the Greek domestic economy is more, you know, is more flexible, is more reformed um, than it was otherwise. And as I, as I said, in terms of, of an ongoing lever, as I say, no matter what you do with the Greek, I mean, seriously, you could write the Greek debt off to nothing, okay? It, doesn't, it would not stop them having to make reforms, particularly competitiveness reforms. The, the, big, cut, I mean, the big cuts in um, public sector wages in Greece, one of the reasons that the Greeks, I mean, they're, they're cutting everything, right? But one of the reasons that they're specifically doing that is they are specifically trying to drive down wage levels. And, and they're doing that because that is the only way that Greece will ever export anything, right? So you drive down public, you hope private wage levels come down with them, and you become more competitive. They're going to have to do that no matter what, frankly. So if, if Greece is going to remain within the euro at all, even if you have a restructuring, that lever will still be there. It will, will hopefully just be there in a way that doesn't cause you know, great damage to um, the rest of the eurozone. Um, and yes, and no, I agree entirely with your, your final point, is that you know, these rules were created, the Stability and Growth Pact, the very first countries, as I say, which broke them were the countries that were keenest on them, um, which emptied them of all credibility. And I haven't, you know, I haven't seen anything that looks like, a, anything coming out of Europe anyway, that looks like um, a replacement for them. But no, we absolutely do. Um, I'm not a, an economist, I'm merely a lawyer, and I'd assume that um, that was uh, a straight choice, that either Greece would stay within the Eurozone or it would default. If I've understood correctly what you've said, there seems to be some thought third alternative which had never really occurred to me, that it would be possible for Greece to default but stay within the Eurozone. Now, if I've correctly assumed that that is what you are saying, what would the consequences be for the Eurozone to have a defaulting partner within it? Uh, that's absolutely what I'm suggesting, yeah. Um, as I said, Greek, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> but Greek bonds are written in Greek law. It would be relatively easy to restructure, I understand. Um, there's nothing particularly, you know, which, which, which then triggers automatic expulsion from the Eurozone. You just have an element within the Eurozone which is defaulted. In the same way, this is a slightly, uh, you know, contrived example, but in the same way that the bankruptcy of Orange County, California, did not require Orange County, California to be expelled from the United States of America. Um, so I don't think there's a legal um, problem in that way. What it would require, of course, is the Eurozone, you know, it's, it's a political and an economic thing. It requires the Eurozone to look at itself, saying, how have we got to the stage where one of our countries has defaulted? Clearly there is something wrong with our rules, there's something wrong with our fiscal rules, um, and then reform them from that. But I don't think, it's, it, I don't think there's, a, there's an overwhelming kind of legal constraint on that at all. <laughs> 
to ask you about, well, you have explained the reasons of why Greece should default, but I would like to ask you about the costs that would imply default. For instance, uh, if Greece government were, were to default its debt, it would bring uh, financial panic and perhaps uh, unbearable costs for other, other governments such, uh, such as Portugal or Spain or Ireland that could bring the weak recovery, economic recovery of the world to, well, it could represent a great danger for it. And uh, the second question that I have is more theoretical. Greeks, Greece default of, it, of its debt would represent a danger and, and it would, would represent a negative outcome in terms of property, property rights, which are, a, according to the institutionalist a view of economics, a, a basis for economic development and for economic sustenance. So, I would like to know these two things, the costs in global terms and also in the future, what would it represent in terms of property rights? Thank you. Sure. If they defaulted tomorrow, I mean, and I mean defaulted with no warning, I think you're absolutely right, you would have the panic, you would have the panic um, uh, effects that you describe. No matter when they default or least, which is why I don't think they should do it tomorrow, when, um, no matter how they default or restructure, it will inflict um, pain, obviously, in on the bondholders, uh, most of whom, to mine, I, I don't think it's perfectly known, but most of whom are foreign banks. They're not mainly, or not very largely, held by Greek banks. And the Greek banking system is actually in a reasonably good shape, uh, happily, um, partly because it's it was it was. <laughs> I guess we'd have once have said it was unsophisticated, and now we would say it was sensible enough not to have got involved in credit default swaps and mortgage <laughs> securities and all the rest of that nonsense. Um, so I think that the, the, the costs that would be inevitable are on um, the bondholders. Though that's just going to happen, I mean that is going to happen. It's annoying uh, and frustrating and potentially destabilizing that those are held specifically by um, commercial banks. Because during most defaults, the uh, debt tends to be held by kind of hedge funds, investment funds, pension funds, and so on. Right? And it's very sad for them and everything, obviously, except the hedge funds for whom nothing is sad. But it's <laughs> I'm not. I'm not um, it's very sad for them, but it doesn't affect the you know, the global economy very much. When Argentina defaulted, you know, on a hundred billion dollars worth of debt in 2001, there was, there was no ripple anywhere else. No other, no one else went down. There was no panic. Nothing. You know, the only people I felt sorry for in that entire situation were the tens and tens of thousands of Italian and German retail investors, I mean, individuals who'd been born swaggled into buying Argentine debt or Argentine debt products. Um, so that's going to, that's clearly going to have to be born at some point. So the question is, okay, well, let's start preparing for it. If we think that's going to happen at some point in the next six or twelve months, those banks, those French and German and Spanish, whatever banks, need to be better capitalised so they can. Um, uh, so they can take the hit without collapsing. If the financial markets are in a sufficiently kind of optimistic mood that they can raise capital themselves, that they can sell, you know, um, fine, they can do that. If not, then they'll need help for, from governments. And one of the more sensible things I've heard in the last few weeks is that this, there's this huge 
fund, which was labelled the bailout fund that the um, Eurozone is creating, basically to do you know, rescue loans like the Greek uh, rescue loan. But you can actually use that, that fund, that, that pot of money, for a whole bunch of things. And um, who is it? It was Strauss-Kahn, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the head of the IMF, said, you know, you could use that money to recapitalise banks if you want. So you can basically use that money and say, we're going to uh, lend that to French and German and Spanish funds who are, who are holding Greek debt such that, you know, we're insulating them against chaos if and when a restructuring comes. And, but, that, you see, and, and that means, you know, you can't get rid of the loss, but you do it in a way which doesn't destabilise everything else. But, you know, fundamentally, I think Greece is going to renege on its debt one way or another, right? So we can do it in a chaotic fashion, or we can try and do it in a controlled fashion. And if we do it in a controlled fashion, we ought to be able to, to avoid the panic response um, you're talking about. Um, you're next, and it's here. Okay, no, it's um, quite a few people. Um, I'm just trying to piece this together. On one of your comments, Alan, you were saying about the the Greek wages having to be debased to allow for exports. Um, I have a question that's sort of surrounding that, and then moving on, because I think Greece will default, and I think it would be very healthy if they did default. But I have a problem about the 20% rate that you, you sort of uh, bookend there. I think that might be far too expensive for Greece to only default on 20% when possibly in something near 40% would actually give them a chance. And I say this with a mind that um, Germany, and especially Germany, let alone France, they don't intend, I'm pretty certain of it, to be importers of the last resort of the rest of Europe. With that in mind, and knowing that Germany does not intend to expand internal consumption, um, you have this problem that if Greece only defaults 20%, they've got no chance in hell of actually getting out of it. That may well be true. Yeah, I'm not wedded to the 20% number at all. It's just people I know who have done. No, people I know who have done the bond maths and looked at the MPV and so on say, <coughs> you know, 20%. As I understand, I can't remember if my member said this. No, I didn't. The you know, these stress tests that they're currently putting the European banks through. I believe that part of that stress test is implicitly testing what would happen if Greece had a 17% reduction, 17% in MPV. But who knows whether that's true or not? It might, it might have been misheard and it might have been 70, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to put 17 out there so it will reassure people who are, yeah, so you can go all, 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 uh, all around things. Yeah, it might, it might well have to be more than that. Um, I don't know. not clear to me how Germany, um, okay, the only way Germany would, can do that, given that they're locked into the Eurozone, is, is um, basically backing up fiscal stimulus, right, and, and backing up domestic demand, and we've seen what the Germans think about domestic demand. Now, this is, this is exactly the, the, the point that my colleague made about this kind of lethal combination of, of provincialism and power, in that Germany is still run as though it were only Germany and it didn't have any, you know, impact for the rest of the world, whereas what they should really be realizing is that they, along with China and along with Japan, are countries which are, you know, exporting, all trying to export their way, um, and there's just a lack of anyone to do any importing, apart from the US. My question is slightly simpler than some of the others, but then I'm a simple fellow. Uh, Britain is not part of the Eurozone, uh, we're not 
part of the Eurozone. Not just because we're part of the Eurozone, but the situation the UK is in um, is enormously helped by the fact that we have our own currency. So, yes, we can um, devalue. You don't have to be, have manufacturing to do exports. The contribution, okay, I'm just going to go into my nerdy Bank of England thing here. Um, the contribution of manufacturing to exports is actually heavily overstated because what people do is look at the gross amount of exports going out of Britain and say exports are 60% or whatever of, um, sorry, manufacturing is 60% of exports. What they do not take into account that um, a large amount of those manufacturers are basically imported things which are then worked on and re-exported. So the net contribution of manufacturing to exports is actually much lower than people think it is. Um, so the fact that you know, we don't have a large manufacturing sector, and by the way, we don't have that tiny a manufacturing sector. When I heard Peter Mandelson going and praising France for their great interventionist industrial policy, France has a smaller share of manufacturing than we do. You know, it's a myth. Um, so the fact that we, uh, you know, the fact that we don't have manufacturing is not is not a massive problem. There is a problem in the sense that one of the things we've been good at exporting is financial services, um, <laughs> which are you know not wildly popular at the moment. But I mean, some of them, like insurance, for example, will still continue to be a, um, a huge export. So if you just look at the dynamics in Britain, the fact that we can um, devalue suggests that no, we don't particularly have to. Um, uh, have to restructure. And we, I know that kind of slavishly looking at whatever the markets think at any given point right, is, a, you know, is a foolish thing to do. However, it is fundamentally the markets and the investors who matter in the sense that they are the ones who are going to buy our debt or not. And um, UK uh, bonds, UK gilts are doing very well, thank you very much. I mean, one of, the, one of the more intellectually dishonest things I have seen in the last couple of months is the government, and particularly Vince Cable, who really should know better, um, suddenly saying, oh yes, now I've suddenly been visited by the archangel of coalition austerity, and he has changed my mind, because, you know, two weeks ago, uh, been, yeah, sorry, as in before the election, Vince Cable was all in, all in um, favour of holding off on big austerity measures until the economy was really going. In fact, he put together a list of really quite sensible kind of contingent um, <coughs> You know, con contingency saying, you know, we will only start cutting when these fourth, when the economy is growing and so on and so forth. Then he did this, you know, uh, complete about turn. And the, um, and what he cited as the reason was the Greek crisis. The Greek crisis has shown us how vulnerable these countries are. But during the Greek crisis, um, money flooded into Britain, right? Guilt, guilt prices went up, guilt yields went down. The UK is a, uh, they did it in the US as well. The UK is regarded as a safe haven. The, you know, the markets do not think Britain is going to default, no matter what anyone says. And, and so while I don't take the, the markets completely on trust, I just don't see that the, have the, you know, I don't see that you have the imperative kind of to start cutting now. I mean, you think about it, okay, countries are kind of on a, on a spectrum, right? There are countries like Greece who just need to tighten fiscal policy very quickly now because they are completely losing the, the, the you know, the, um, uh, the confidence of investors. You have countries like Ireland who are doing it like, mm, did they really need to do it now? I don't know, but erring on the side of caution, maybe. Um, then you have um, countries like, right out on this end, you have the US, right, which clearly never needs to, to tighten fiscal policy, apparently. Um, and uh, Germany, kind of here, and so on. Now, Britain is kind of here, 
you know? It's, and on the side of should you do it now or should you do it later? No. The IMF thinks the UK actually has um, you know, some capacity to keep fiscal demand going, to keep it going. But, you know, if the IMF says that, um, they're not known for their kind of, for, for taking risks. So from that point of view, no, I think Britain is actually in a situation where it, um, where it can actually um, get out of it. You know, we have control over our own monetary policy and we have control over our own fiscal policy. I think there's more of a danger at the moment of tightening very quickly and putting the economy back into recession. Um, my question uh, basically is two parts. First part is um, would you agree in the argument that the Eurozone was created in the Northern European model? like France and Germany's model. And that being said, going forward, being a historian, um, after an impending, uh, sorry, after an impending default, shouldn't we take this into account? That, you know, the, the whole model of this economic system is based on the Northern economic model. And culturally and, you know, economically, it's functioned differently in the Southern European markets. So. Can I ask you what you mean by Northern European model? Do you mean in terms of the way that the currency no, itself was devised, central bank was devised? Or? Banking, doing business in Northern Europe, France and Germany, you know, culturally um, the mindset is different. And I think that shouldn't that be taken into account going forward? And, and historically, is there any evidence as to why that wasn't taken into account, you know, in, in the past in creating the Eurozone? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm just trying to think now, because I've not really thought about this, what a Northern European model would be compared with a Southern European one. I mean, the way it was designed, the ECB, the European Central Bank, was designed kind of on the Bundesbank model, basically because the Germans would not accept anything that didn't look a bit like their beloved Bundesbank. Um, I'm not sure that in terms of the way it works, or I'm not terms in, in, in terms of the structure or the culture, I'm not sure that was wildly different from the way you know Southern European countries had worked. You were saying unsophisticated. I'm sorry to interrupt. You were saying unsophisticated in terms of the banking system in Greece, and now we're saying it was sensible, but you know it's cultural differences, different way of doing business. I mean. Yeah, that's I mean, that's, really I think Greece is, is slightly, I mean, you know, the Spanish banking system is, I wouldn't call it um, unsophisticated, not least because they're buying up all the banks <laughs> in, in Britain. Um, so, yeah, they, okay, so the countries were at different rates, at different kind of stages of development, or different kind of ways of development, that is certainly true. And I guess that kind of roughly coincides with, with North and South, though once you'd started letting in, or starting to admit different, you know, new waves of members from the East, that kind of that pattern wasn't quite there. But I think the real, the real problem is not necessarily Northern Southern, okay, here's what I think. The real problem is not necessarily Northern Southern European, right? Because Ireland is one of the countries that is a problem. The problem was you had core countries who, because of their size, France and Germany in particular, because of their size, um, tended to just, you know, arithmetically to dominate Eurozone GDP. So interest rates were set basically with um, regard to them. Right? Not because there was a bias, but just because you know, they were the big ones. Um, and then you had countries which tended, for whatever reason, to be on the periphery, 
um, including the Northwestern Right, so Ireland, um, who tended to be countries that had some catch-up to do in terms of who were less well-off per capita, so they had some catch-up to do, but they tended to have higher inflation. And the interest rates for those countries were just um, too low. And so you got exactly what you'd imagine, which is housing bubbles in countries like Ireland and Spain, and you know, borrowing binge in um, places like in, in Greece, for example. And what those countries should have been doing is running extremely tight fiscal policy to offset the, you know, the loose, the too loose monetary policy. According, according to the northern model. But they didn't. Yeah, but I think any country that runs very loose monetary policy and very loose fiscal policy is in trouble. And if you're in a single currency, you're particularly in trouble. Um, and so, you know, the structural problems were that, as I say, you know, the structural problems were that it was always going to be difficult having countries like that, having different kinds of countries within the same single currency. But I don't think it's necessarily to do with culture or, or whatever. I think it's just to do with the, the, things, the, the sense that there were different um, stages in development and, and you know, they required different interest rates. I mean, you know, I keep going back to this, but the United States is an enormously successful um, you know, uh, monetary union. Right? The culture in California is quite different from that in Mississippi is quite different from that in New Jersey and so forth, where the way business, all sorts of things. Nonetheless, they all manage to kind of coexist fairly well, as long as it's technically designed reasonably well and as long as there's enough flexibility. But I think it's that that's the real problem. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a cultural or geographical. Uh, okay, let me start to take questions in uh, packs of two, bundles of two, so there's some question restructuring going on. Uh, restructuring as, of, uh, as opposed to default doesn't subtract from uh, from the present value of the debt. Well, your uh, questions now have to be 25% shorter than the uh, other That's uh, the, the point is essentially I don't want uh, this to become too much of a stress test for our speaker. Uh, so please. <coughs> Hi, uh, my name is Joseph Mihalachi. Thank you for your interesting talk. I um, uh, want to make a comment on your uh, earlier answer to a uh, question in the room regarding the uh, bank's um, capitalization. Um, I challenge somehow um, that uh, statement and I uh, wonder uh, to comment further. I just want to say that uh, Greek banks might be well capitalized now when they have the backing of uh, almost one trillion US dollars from the uh, uh, European Union. But uh, I wonder what happens when they will default because obviously they will be uh, downgraded with junk status by credit agencies. And then what would be the consequences of that when the Greek banks have uh, massive investment and uh, shareholder uh, share market in Eastern Europe? So if you please comment on this. Thank you. Can I also take the next question? Sorry, do you want me to ask it straight away? So I was basically, I mean, it's been an intriguing talk, and thank you very much, but it almost seemed to me like you're actually edging towards suggesting we need some form of sovereign insolvency slash administration procedure. But as you mentioned, there's also that element of the irrationality in the creditors and in the debtors. So doesn't that make that probably in reality impossible? Um, on the first of these, yeah. But not, my thesis is that you know Greece is going to write down the value of its debt no matter what. So it's better to do it in control fashion when the Greek and all the other banks have a chance to recapitalize themselves and repair themselves for it than it is to hold on and hold on and make things worse and worse and worse. I, I think this is the problem and I think this is the kind of um, denial that a lot of people in Europe in that they think the 
alternatives are between you know, Greece putting through a lot of very painful reforms but coming out of it and Greece irresponsibly defaulting. Whereas my view, the choice is likely to be Greece putting through a lot of extremely painful reforms, why aren't we scheduling? And Greece putting through a bunch of painful reforms and defaulting in a chaotic way. I think the, you know, not, the banks holding Greek debt don't come well out of either of those, but I think they come better out of the, the, the calm one than the, than the um, uncontrolled one. Um, sovereign debt bankruptcy mechanisms. Oh, my specialist subject. Um, there's a whole bunch of plans to do this in the early 2000s, uh, pushed, interestingly enough, by the IMF, um, or the sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. Um, I actually remember getting the story, I think I got the scoop on the thing when they, they actually killed it, the Americans killed it, and I remember writing the story and thinking, with this story, I'm just destroying a gigantic part of my own human capital. None of this knowledge is ever going to be worth anything again. Um, little did I know, 10 years later, it was going to pop up again, which I'm very happy about. Um, the IMF um, proposal was, which you may know, was as follows. If a country gets into problems such that it's clearly going to have to restructure, they can file for something like bankruptcy protection. Um, that will stop uh, bondholders litigating against them. And it's not a, it's not a time-limited thing. They carry on doing this for as long as, in the opinion of the IMF or whatever body is set up to oversee this, they are negotiating in good faith with their creditors. This is to stop um, the situation which you have had of, uh, of countries defaulting and immediately being hit by a wave of, um, of litigation, a lot of which is not very successful, but is just a real pain to deal with. And you, know, you do have people who, you, know, you have vulture funds who get very distressed when I call them vulture funds and, and want to be called distressed debt investors, so naturally I call them vulture funds. Um, who will deliberately buy up debt um, for the purposes of litigating, and that's just a, you know that that is that benefits no one. It's just a pain, um, and an SDRM would would kind of hope to deal with that. I hope this comes back on the table. Actually, I hope the SDRM comes back on the table because I you know I was I thought it was a good idea, and I thought um, you know my newspaper was strongly supportive of it. It's a kind of obvious missing part of the the procedure. You know, as I was saying before, in the, in the same way that personal and commercial debt um, and bankruptcy has been kind of transformed and, and things like this have been created. Soviet debt has, but kind of not to this point. Um, designing it is going to be kind of hard because it suggests you're um, intervening in local, um, kind of in local debt. And the way the, the current version of, or the, the version of the IMF came up with, it wouldn't affect Greece, actually, because theirs dealt only with external debt. I don't think they actually had to... Um, uh, to come up with personal debt. Just, it just, just occurred to me, I have not answered the question about property rights over here, <laughs> which is part of the same thing. Um, obviously, abrogating property rights is a, you know, wholesale is a dangerous thing to do. If you're making it clear that you are doing so in extremis as a one-off, um, then you can get away with it. No, when, you know, when the US abrogated the gold clause, right, no one thought that's the end of property rights in America. People recognized this as something they absolutely had to do and then you just kind of have to earn um, trust in your, your adherence to property rights um, as time goes on. And that's the same thing about, about sovereign debt. You know, no one thinks that the US doesn't respect property rights just because they have 
Chapter 11, and in fact, the US bankruptcy protection is, is actually much so relatively soft on uh, the debtor compared to other countries. Um, so yeah, I, I hope it comes back, not least because it will mean I have more stuff to write about. Very good. Uh, I have two questions on the right, and there will be two questions on the left, and then I'm afraid we <coughs> need to uh, go into default. Um, you have utilized mainly the case study of Argentina as a framework for your analysis. Um, I was wondering, are there any lessons to be learned from other countries, such as, for example, countries which are more closer to Greece geographically, or countries which currently form the main labor supply for Greece? This is number one. And number two, from an empirical standpoint, what matches better your framework of analysis? In this case, have you been talking have you been employing contingent inductivism, empirical inductivism, or inductive empiricism? Hi, I was just wondering um, in terms of what you think might be a trigger point or the catalyst to actually start the potential restructuring. Hi, I just have a quick question for the historian rather than the economist. What I find really interesting is you talk about this tension that's between political will and economic reality. And I think that seems to me that's the tension that is, you know, this, this happens. But because political systems are getting bigger, it's becoming more obvious and it's, it's becoming a bigger problem as the political systems themselves get bigger. And I just wondered whether you could sort of put your neck on the line a bit and have pause an opinion about whether you think this tension will result in people, political systems becoming more pragmatic in their approaches to these problems, or whether in fact this is going to have the effect that the political systems are going to break down slightly and we're going to have a smaller, more segmented future. First question, I wasn't sure I caught what you were saying about um, uh, what kind of countries, other, co other countries you wanted me to look at, the defaults in, in which other countries? Albania, I just simply don't know enough about, I don't know enough about the kind of individual countries. But, um, I can't quite think how that would fit into it, but I don't think there's been a, a no, I don't. I mean, I don't think that's been a kind of fundamental issue of different, different um, supply-side countries. That's not what I know. I'm afraid. Um, the trigger point. Do you mean the trigger? Okay, the trigger point for um, voluntary restructuring, right? And the trigger point for um, uh, for uncontrolled default. The trigger point for uncontrolled default um, is really weird. Sometimes it just appears to be nothing at all. It's one of these. Um, things where, and I remember with Argentina, where you go on for ages and you kind of, it's gone on for so long without Argentina actually defaulting that you think, oh, maybe it's not going to default simply because of it. And that's the point it defaults, right? <laughs> exactly the point when you've just kind of given up on it. And a lot of the time it doesn't really seem to be a trigger. You get, I mean, you clearly get waves of defaults um, 
when there's a lot of stress, um, you know, and a lot of countries in the same position at the same time. So, for example, the Asian financial crisis, right? Go, countries go one after the other. And partly it's simply because um, investors start to re-rate and start to worry about any country that has the same sort of um, characteristics as the one that's just, just gone under. Um, and that's certainly what's happened, for example, in Eastern Europe over the past, you know, about 18 months ago, when you know, kind of Latvia got in trouble and then Hungary got in trouble and then Ukraine got in trouble and all the people looked at, looked at um, one or the other. But when you're talking about a country like Greece that doesn't have an immediate trigger from anyone else, it just it can go really quickly, it can go really slowly, it's really, it's really odd. There's a guy, I'm trying to think who this was now, um, he was on Richard Nixon's Council of Economic Advisors and his great saying was, things that can't go on forever don't. In theory they could, they've got a three year program. Um, I think it's going to be obvious before then, it's going to be obvious after a year or so, whether they're actually getting the growth they need. If, if the growth isn't coming back, then they're going to be in trouble before the end of three years. Yeah. I mean, what I would do if I were then, depending on what turns out, is take about a year's worth of money, use that to give yourself some breathing space, actually to get your, you know, to screw down on the fiscal thing, um, uh, and get your, your country on the right track from that point of view, and then restructure. That's the strategy I would do, which would hopefully give everyone else about a year to prepare for it as well. Um, political systems, I'm not entirely convinced political systems are getting a lot bigger actually. I think there's a lot more talk about it, but with the exception of the Eurozone, um, and the exception of the EU, which seems to have hit, uh, or the Eurozone anyway, and the kind of integration of powers within the EU seems to have kind of come to a natural stop for the moment, I'm not sure there is a lot of pooling of sovereignty going on elsewhere. There's a huge amount of chatter about it. And there's infinite amount of chatter about we're going to create a new trade, you know, then we're going to tra create an ASEAN trade zone, or we're going to create a Mercosur trade zone, we're going to create what's the latest one, an East African community, blah, blah, blah. We're going to have the G20 running the whole world, you know, big fleet of black helicopters, blah, blah, blah. Um, in reality, uh, and this, by the way, is going to be my next book, um, <laughs> in reality, I think there's a lot less, a lot less in this than, than people talk about. What you've seen in the current crisis, I think, is the existing um, institutions that we inherited from uh, the end of the Second World War. So the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, and what is now the World Trade Organization, which used to be the general agreement on tariffs and trade. Those institutions are still there. They have held up pretty well, actually. The WTO, I mean, nobody can sign any new trade deals, but the WTO has held pretty firm. You've seen very little protectionism um, really in this, um, in this crisis. So the institutions that are there have held okay, but, and the IMF has been doing well, but they haven't really changed and they haven't really become bigger. You know, the IMF had to, they kind of had to increase its war chest just to make, you know, parry pursue with the, with the world economy. But there's all this talk about we're now going to have, um, you know, a global system of managing demand, global system. None of it has happened at all. I mean, everything that we were talking about before, you know, countries like Germany acting in a, in a, way which is fine for them but irresponsible for everyone else. Uh, China, to some extent, the China's a bit better, um, doing the same. I don't think that we are actually seeing a lot of our political sovereignty pooling of it. And I think, you know, I think episodes like this are part of the problem. I mean, those people in Asia, and I've heard this very frequently, uh, people within 
associations like ASEAN in, in Southeast Asia who've said, you know, we are going to model ourselves on the European Union, look how good the European Union <laughs> is, have been looking at it over the last couple of years and thinking, yes, if we had a, if we had a, um, an ASEAN single currency, we're going to be bailing the Philippines out, aren't we, in 15 years' time? So I think that's one of the things that's actually holding them back. I guess, yeah. Maybe with the last three questions here, 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 and then I think we wrap up. Just a brief question about the bond markets. So that's where all the debt is. Um, do you believe that this, uh, this idea of an orderly restructuring of Greek debt has become mainstream? Or to put it another way, do you think that the bond markets have priced this in? Uh, and if not, why do you think they have not done so? Would you agree that it's significant that the Deutschmark of all currencies went into the euro at a too high level? and that what's occurring at the moment in Greece, Portugal, Spain and Ireland is simply anticipated collateral damage for a longer term German fiscal European project. Hi, I have a question about the Eurozone as a whole. Uh, Greece is in crisis now, there are doubts about Spain and Portugal and Ireland and even Italy is dead, so should they eventually be all allowed to default in the Eurozone? Is it, is it a viable general uh, solution for them? And what can the European Union, uh, or actually the Eurozone, do as a preemptive measure quickly so it could maybe get the Eurozone back on track and away from other crises? Thank you. Um. From what I have seen of the numbers, it's difficult knowing what the bond markets are thinking because you don't know what the estimate of their their estimate of the likely write down is going to be. So to me, so kind of if they think it's going to be a write down of 50%, then you could back out from that their probability that there will be a write down. Um, from what I have seen, there is quite a high probability in there that of um, restructuring. I can't remember exactly what it is but it is certainly non-negligible. I mean, there's certainly a lot of it in. And one of the interesting things is that it's risen again over the past month or so, I think. Yeah, because there was a kind of sudden burst of optimism um, just after the package was unveiled. No one thought, hey. And then, uh, actually only after a few weeks, after maybe a month of that, the kind of prices started creeping up again. Which, and that didn't appear to be triggered by anything, really, apart from markets having another look at this and thinking, not really true. So I think, yeah, I think they are kind of pricing things in. And just in terms of numbers, someone told me, this is secondhand, but this is someone who knows a lot of emerging market investors. Um, they took a short poll at a big meeting they had of, of Wall Street investors, and they said 80% were expecting some kind of restructuring. So yeah, I think, I don't know how much is in the market, but I think there's kind of a fair amount in the market. Um, I mean, the German DMARC going in at too high a level, um, I mean, that was, I don't know if your point was that that then created intrinsic strains in the Eurozone, which were, which were always going to pull it apart, or? No, it's strengthened the German, the German economy in contrast to, so it's like a big, 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 you know, the Yeah, kind of, but they only, they kind of did, but th that's only because they've gone into higher level to begin with. You know, if you started five yards behind everyone else in a race, you just have to run faster to catch up, but that wouldn't mean you were 
ahead of them. Had Germany gone in at a more competitive level, then you know, they wouldn't necessarily have had to do that. I mean, Germany, Germany, just because of its structure and just because of the the, um, uh, the tradition of I'm trying to remember the word now, Mitbestimmung, the tradition of the tradition of Mitbestimmung coordination. I did four years of German school. That's all I can remember. Um, the tradition of, of coordination um, just means that they can kind of adjust like that. So the fact they went in too high, they did five years of adjustment and they, they came down. Um, so I the initial starting point for a country like Germany um, wasn't actually that important. The real problem is that the other countries, particularly the peripheral countries in the Eurozone, just you know, didn't know how to do that kind of um, adjustment. Interestingly, now I think about it, Ireland actually has quite a similar union structure. They should have been able to do that um, if they'd wanted to. But I think in Ireland, just this, this idea took off that you know, you know, the Celtic Tiger, everything that was happening there was entirely justified. There was no bubble, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so they didn't. So I don't think it's the initial starting point that's the problem. I think it's just the kind of in, intrinsic differences. Um, and, oh yeah, the Eurozone um, all being allowed to default. I mean, I don't think they have to. Um, from what I have seen and looked at it, Portugal seems to be in quite a similar situation to um, uh, Greece, but it's not absolutely clear that Portugal would have to go. Spain, I think, is, is actually in somewhat better um, position. Its fundamentals are actually okay. The, it wasn't running a huge deficit. Spain actually got its um, debt down, I think, to about 40% of GDP uh, before the crisis hit. What was whacked there? their debt back up again is the fact that essentially they've had to spend all this public money supporting the banking sector. So that was a kind of one-off response to the crisis. It wasn't really um, uh, that they had some kind of really intrinsic problems. Um, so I don't think there are a whole bunch of countries which will, be, which will have to um, restructure. I just think that even if this particular crisis is over, this will not necessarily be the last, um, you know, the last country that has to reschedule. And I don't think we can just hang on now, suggesting that we cannot let any country reschedule in case it creates you know, um, problems for the others. It's never a good thing to design the machinery as you go along, right? It's better to design it at the beginning. Unfortunately, the Eurozone did not design it at the beginning. And so I think designing it as we go along is basically the only option they have. Okay, thank you very much. This was some uh, fascinating highly informative and enlightened talk. I think tonight we got as close as possible uh, to looking into the uh, big crystal, crystal ball. Um, thank you also uh, everyone for attending tonight, uh, for asking questions. It's a typical thing of these events that uh, in the end there are more questions than answers. Uh, that's uh, probably in the nature of uh, such things. So my apologies to all those um, uh, who I couldn't call for the, for the question. Anyway, um, have a nice evening. Thank you for coming and enjoy the evening.